All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Matt. I'm the microchurch pastor. I'm, I'm really hoping I can preach this the way that I feel it because it is just in my bones this morning. So happy Father's Day to all you fathers here in person, online. We're glad you're here with us. This is always a fun time of year for me because my birthday always falls either on or around Father's Day. So today's Father's Day. My 40th birthday is on Tuesday. So I'm turning 40, y'all. I know I don't look it, but uh, 40 years old, it's gonna be good. All right, hey, we are continuing in our series on the book of Acts today, where we have seen in this book that if it is God, nothing can stop it. And today we're diving into one of these stories where the people in power did everything they could to stop this man, but they could not stop him with argumentation. They could not stop him by arresting him. They could not even stop him with his death. In fact, his death could not stop the gospel and the works of Jesus. The blood of this martyr exponentially increased the depth, the width, and the power of the gospel going forth. Because if it's God, nothing can stop it. You can kill the messenger, but if Jesus is the centerpiece of the story, it will not be stopped. Amen. Now, the first martyr of the church is not one of the apostles that you might have thought. It's actually one of the first deacons that we got exposed to last week. And he was one of the seven men helped to chose, chosen to help with the widows of this church. And his name was Stephen. And so we're going to read a little bit more about him in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. If you would go ahead and stand one more time. This is just how we honor God's word here. If you are physically able, we'd love for you to do that. Even if you're watching online, join us. It says this, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as provinces from Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him to spoke. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teacher of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, Stephen goes on to give a lengthy 60-verse history of the Jewish faith and heritage, which I'm not going to read right now. But he begins with Abraham and works all the way to Jesus being the fulfillment as the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for. And he gives a biblical history. But I want to pick up at the end of this, this monologue he's doing because his prophetic ending is really what ticked off the Jewish leaders and pushed them over the edge. So he ended with this in verse 51. He said, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law and was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as they, at this, they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices and they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. God, I pray that you are going to use your word to let us burn for you like Stephen. That you are really going to unlock something in our souls and our spirits that connects us so deeply with you that we are transformed forever. Let your word go forth for your power and glory. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. So there's a lot that are happening in these verses. This church is starting to explode in Jerusalem. People are coming to the Lord. The apostles have their hands full. They can't keep up with the demand. There's an exponentially expanding community along with the needs of this community. So what they do is they start delegating. So Stephen is one of these deacons. He's not an apostle. He's not a trained orator. He's simply a follower of Jesus who gets tasked with serving widows. He's the, he's the widow waiter, right? It's not a very sexy high position in the church. But it's really interesting because when we, when we start hearing about Stephen in the Bible, the words that are ascribed to him are quite powerful and profound. It says he's a man full of faith, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. It says he's a man of grace and power. I mean, that'd be nice if those were like the five words somebody thought of you. Like, it's not like, oh, he's tall, he's white, he's a pastor. It's like, no, he's a man full of grace, power, faith, the Holy Spirit. I'm like, come on, that's what I'm talking about. Stephen was a man of spiritual power, as the Bible says. He even performed signs and wonders. But the one thing that's stated without being stated in the Bible that was that Stephen was not only a man of the spirit and power, but he was a man of the truth and the word of God. See, he embodied what Jesus was looking for in John 4 when he said he was looking for worshipers in spirit and in truth. Because Stephen walked in the power of God, but he was extremely well-versed in the Bible. Okay, and this is pretty critical right now in our current age because biblical literacy and worldviews are on a sharp decline. Barna did a study that said 6% of millennials have a biblical worldview, and Gen Z has 4% have a biblical worldview. There's a, there's a biblical literary, literacy crisis. And so right now, we really need to figure out how we can train you, whatever generation you are, to be biblically literate, to know the word of God, and then we can subsequently train all of the generations underneath you. We need to get good at telling ourselves the whole story of who God is. That's even our first point today. Tell yourself the whole story of who God is. And this is where Stephen excelled. He knew the Bible. He knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He knew the prophets, everything available to him inside and out. He knew the entirety of the scriptural arc, the narrative of God's story from Genesis to Jesus. He says the 60-verse breakdown. I encourage you to read that after service today. But in Acts 6, 9 through 10, Stephen is rolling on the scene, but opposition arises, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, verse 9 says, who began to argue with Stephen but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gave him as he spoke. Man, I would have loved to watch Stephen walk into a synagogue. Man, that man had some holy swag. He just walks in there. He's like, hey, listen, this is Jesus. This is who he is. Come at me. Bring your best. I will show you in your scriptures where Jesus is Messiah, where Jesus is Lord. And at the end of the day, he had been like, you got anybody else? Because apparently Jesus is still on the throne according to this debate. Drop that mic and walk out of that synagogue. Because Stephen didn't just know Jesus, he knew the whole story of God. And why is this important? Because when we rely on spoon-fed sound bites from pastors and preachers and tweets and TikTok hot takes, the depth of our understanding of who God truly is is an inch deep. The problem is, 
The problem is you can recite all the scriptures, you can say all the superficial things, but if you don't have an understanding of what you're saying or why they are important, what happens is someone comes along who has three iterations deeper in their doctrinal error and who can run circles around you that is more than your regurgitated what Pastor Matt said or what I watched on TikTok, and what happens is you get confused and tripped up. We start believing false gospels and doctrines because you don't know the whole story. Now, there's a robustness and a depth of intimacy that we can have with the word of God that goes beyond just feeling Jesus's presence. I think a lot of times we base how good our time with Jesus is on how much we're feeling it or how many spiritual goosebumps we have after our quiet time, and that's just not a good indicator of what a solid time with the Lord is. It's the same thing in a relationship. So if you've been married for three years and you're still relying on the butterflies in your stomach to make you happy in the relationship, you're not gonna make it. All right, anybody been married for more than three years in the room? Can I get an amen, right? I've been married 16 years. I don't wake up in the morning and turn and see my wife in the bed and go, oh my God, she's right next to me. Like that's, that's not reality, right? Married people, right? Reality is I'm like, hey baby, how you doing? She's like, oh boy, brush your teeth before you give me a kiss and we'll talk about this later. That's reality. And I'm okay with that because butterflies in my stomach is not what's keeping my relationship with my wife maintained. See, Tracy and I have lived life together. We've gone through things that few people can match. We've had major celebrations, major grief, and we forged a oneness that cannot be replicated. So when a college-age girl comes up and looking at me flirtatious, I'm gonna say, honey, don't waste your time. You don't know me. You don't know what I like. There's nothing you can do to even come close to what my wife is giving me. So why don't you go Jezebel somebody else? (laughs) because here's the deal sex is not about sex when you truly understand it it's about the intimacy of the relationship sex is a beautiful expression of that intimacy but it is not the end goal in the same way if you are pursuing spiritual goosebumps in your quiet times you will never be satisfied and you will feel like God has abandoned you when the goosebumps aren't there and your relationship will remain superficial Church, we need to dig into the word and mine out the beauty and the truth and the power within so that our souls are anchored and tethered to the word of God and truth so that when the storms of doctrinal error are whipping around you, you stand firm. When you are not feeling it in your quiet time, you don't have a spiritual breakdown. And when someone says something that rocked your friends from the latest TikTok preacher that starts his take with, did you know that the Bible? And then they say something false about it, you're not phased. Stephen was so immersed in the word of God that he would go up against entire synagogues of well-versed Jewish believers from all over the world and he was not faced because he knew the whole story of God and he knew how Jesus fit perfectly in that story as the Paschal Lamb. Because when you taste the real thing, you never are the same and you can always taste an imposter. By knowing and tasting the real thing, Stephen, through the word and the spirit, he did. He tasted and he saw that the Lord was good and nothing could convince him otherwise. So when, amen, that's what I'm talking about, brother. Um, So when Tracy, uh, we had just had our first baby, Alethea, she's 10 now, when she was less than one years old, she had major GI issues and we were trying to figure it out. Um, Tracy was still nursing her at the time, so Tracy had to go on this insanely restrictive diet. So she ate chicken with no sauce or chicken 
white rice, lettuce, and vinegar for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for months at a time. She was a committed mama. She loved that baby. And the, the problem is my wife loves sweets. She has such a sweet tooth. But it's been months and months since she's had anything like that. And so we finally got to the point where we thought it would be okay. She found these dairy-free, vegan uh, chocolate morsels, you know, the kinds you put in your chocolate chip cookies. And she would wait till the end of the day, and she'd have like three or four of these things. And she'd put them in her mouth, and her knees would buckle. And she was like, this is, this is heaven in my mouth, right? Because after months of being able to taste nothing, she tasted that, she was like, oh, this is so good, this is so good. And then finally, she gets off this restrictive diet, and she has regular chocolate morsels. She tries, she's like, oh, these are great. She's like, but you know what, it's probably healthier for me to eat those like dairy-free, vegan uh, chocolate chip morsels. So she went back to those, she put them in her mouth, and she spit them out, and she said, good God, how did I ever think that this tasted good? Because when you've tasted and seen the real thing, counterfeits taste like ash in your mouth. But Tracy had neglected the chocolate for months at a time. So when she had the fake chocolate in her mouth, it tasted good. But when you taste and you know and you're consuming the word of God on a daily basis, you have in a depth, an acute taste of truth of God's word so that anything else tastes, feels, and sounds off. We've got to tell ourselves the whole story of who God is. Because there are truths in the New Testament that can only be appreciated by knowing the context of where they come from in the Old Testament. So many Christians cannot appreciate the depth and the beauty of Scripture because they don't know the history. It's like eating an M&M with no chocolate on the inside. Right? For reasons like we call Jesus the Lamb of God. And sometimes you just, that's just, you come in, why do we call, I don't know, that's what they say at church, Jesus, the Lamb of God. But when you look at the sacrificial system in the Jewish history, and you see for hundreds and hundreds of years, they tried to eradicate sin, they tried to get it out of the way, but nothing could ultimately take it away. There was marred on our souls, and we had to just kind of try again and again and again, but then here comes Jesus, and he once and for all eradicates sin and the guilt and the condemnation. He snatches the keys from death, hell, and the grave. You start to appreciate the Lamb of God. When Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we're like, okay, that's cool. That's what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. That's what the Jews said about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they said, oh, this is it. So Jesus is coming. He's not just saying, I'm here as a rabbi. He's saying, I am the word of God. And there's a beauty and a depth and an appreciation when we look at things like the Great Commission. And you're like, okay, yeah, Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. But when you realize that he's tying that all the way back to Genesis 12 and Abraham's call to be a blessing to the nations, and it goes back even farther to Genesis 1 where he calls Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, you say, oh, wow, Jesus, you took it from the garden all the way to where we're hearing the commission. It's amazing what we can do when we know the whole story of God and how that affects our souls. To know that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies that is literally incalculable odds to do in his death, burial, and resurrection, it is amazing to think about what we can do when we know the word of God. We know the whole story, not just New Testament or Sunday morning sound bites. Because again, bring it back to relationships. If you're banking on how well you kiss to sustain your marriage, you're done. Sign the divorce papers now, Romeo. You're not as good as you think. 
But if you're after the knowledge and the intimacy of your spouse and you're committed to learning and loving fiercely the same person for the rest of your life, you will have explosive intimacy and a deep covenantal love with that person. And in the same way, when we commit ourselves to the word of God and the whole story and we learn it, and we don't just learn about it, we live it, and then we reproduce that in other people, then you are going to have a richness and an assuredness like Stephen did. You will know who God is for yourself, and it won't be like me just telling you about someone we mutually admire from afar. He will be, like we were singing, your father, not your dad that's far off in the cosmos that you hope he doesn't get upset. No, he is your intimate father. When we know this, we can refute things that are not true. We can stand up against adversity, and we can stand against our adversaries with humility and grace and show them the true way to the Father through Jesus Christ. Prosperity gospels, relative truth, self-help, and self-centered gospels will fall apart as they crack and crumble on the anchor of the true gospel of narrative that is revealed by Jesus and who he is from Genesis to Revelation. Because the word of God is living and active, but we have to engage the whole story to allow it to do its work. But I wanna be clear about something. When we tell ourselves the whole story of who God is, it's not just head knowledge that we get from it. When we learn and dig into this God story, it will transform you. Hebrews says it penetrates, it divides your soul and spirit, your joint and marrow. So the second point this morning is a very simple one. Let the God story transform you. Don't just read it on the page, ingest it into your spirit and let it make you someone new. Because our vision is not to have Bible-thumping experts who can refute any doctrinal error with cold, abrasive assault. That was never Jesus' intention. He did not ever want information dissemination. He didn't want Bible trivia transfer. He wants heart transformation. Yeah, and when we read and we know the scriptures, we're able to get to know God and see his beauty and his grace and his mercy and the love that he has for all people. And there's an urgency in our bones to go tell other people about this God who loves us and gave everything for us. He doesn't care about what you know. He cares about who you are internally. And that internal transformation leads to external fruitfulness with the ability to share that truth wrapped in grace and love. We serve an inside-out God. He doesn't care for your religious externals. He doesn't care if you know how to say too blessed to be stressed and you can put on a good church face. He doesn't want dead religion that masks a broken and dead spirit on the inside. Jesus is super clear about this. We found it in the first century and we can find it in this room right now. There are people in this room who know the Bible better than you ever will and their heart are far from the Lord. Our vision is not biblical knowledge. Our vision is we want people who are greater on the inside than they are on the outside. Notice what it says about Stephen. Five internal things that led to two external things. The five internal things was that he was a man full of, inside, the Holy Spirit, grace, faith, power, and wisdom. The two external manifestations was that he performed signs and wonders and that his phys- even his physical appearance was changed by the presence of God. They said he looked intently at him and he saw a face like an angel. Wow, how awesome is that? When you are so enamored with Jesus and his presence and his word that it changes the way that you look. 
Have you ever been around someone where their physical presence just shook you to the bottom of your spirit? This is my testimony. I was not raised in church. I was a 17-year-old punk kid. I thought I was just a big deal. I mean, I was like a, on student council. I, was the, I had been the captain of the soccer team. I had a Camaro. I had a girlfriend. I was a pre-med going to UF. If you ask 17-year-old Matt, I was kind of a big deal. <laughs> I had it going on. I was like, man, my life is good, all right? I, I, am, I am doing well. And my mom sent me to this, like, Christian camp, I really didn't wanna go. I don't even, I'm like, you don't even go to church. Why are you sending me to church? But my best friend was going, so I went with him. And it was like this week-long Habitat for Humanity type of deal. So there's five of us. We go to this lady, Miss Park's house. And it was just a, a fascinating thing because we walked in. We were gonna help change some stuff out in her kitchen sink unit. And she was like, oh, please, hey, don't step there. Don't step there. You, you might kind of fall through. I mean, her house was falling apart. And I was like, oh, and then you look. You're like, oh, my God, you might, you might actually fall through there. Like, and I get to know her story. And six months before we get there, her husband dies. Six months before that, her son died. She has a bad case of gout. She couldn't leave her house. I mean, I could not have written a better sob story to tell you right now. But I walk in here as this arrogant 17-year-old kid, and Miss Parks is here serving us lemonade and cookies. And I'm like, Miss Parks, save your money. Why you, don't waste this on And she goes, oh, it's a, and she'd say things like, oh, it's just a blessing to serve you all. I'm like, lady, we're here to serve you. And I just, it couldn't get my mind around. She had so much peace and joy and the two things that I really didn't have. And so I just was drawn to this woman. By the end of the week, I just had to ask her, I'm like, Miss Parks, what, what keeps you going? Like, you've got all this adversity. I, I mean, I didn't even know how to finish the sentence. And I'll never forget this. This changed my life. She's an older lady, and she's in a rocking chair. And she rocked, and she looked up. She looked right back into my eyes. She stopped rocking and said, Matt, I thank God that he gave me a husband and a son for the time he did. I have a roof over my head. I have breath in my lungs. Jesus has been good to me. She didn't say anything else. She didn't preach the gospel to me. She didn't say, you need to get what I have. But I saw Jesus in this woman. As tangible as it is touching my skin, I saw Jesus on this woman. And it was something about the way that he had transformed her and the way that she was communicating that to me that in that moment, it shook me to my core. I wanted what that woman had. And at the Christian camp, it was a Thursday night, kind of at the end, they do their big altar call. And I'll be honest, I didn't go down. I was a cynical kid. I'm like, I'm not going down there. But Jesus, if that is what Miss Parks has, I want everything you have for me. And my life got wrecked from that night on. And this is the type of person that Stephen was and the kind of person that we want you to have the privilege of becoming in and with God, whose hearts are trending towards Jesus and you're not stuck in a rut because you know a lot about Jesus, but you know Jesus, that your physical expression, the words you say, the actions that you show are dripping with the presence of God because you've spent such quality time with him that he has literally changed everything about you and helped you become the person that you were created to be. Let the God story transform you. Okay, another great biblical example of this is David, right? This boy at a young age was convinced by the whole story of God and was transformed by it. 
Now, David and Goliath is a fairly well-known story, but anybody who's new, I'm just going to give you kind of a crash course here. So the Israelites were God's people in the Old Testament. Often they'd be fighting against other clans and people groups, and one of these was the Philistines, and so they're in this locked battle with the Philistines, and what the Philistines had done for the last 40 days was send out their champion. This massive nine-foot behemoth of a man comes out, and basically the deal was, I'll send you my champion, you send me your champion, whoever champion wins, wins the battle, and we enslave the other people. And so the Israel soldiers are shaken in their boots. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't go up against this person. And now here comes David, who's not even part of the military. He's just coming to give his brother some bread and cheese. And he sees this Philistine, and he has no military experience. Scholars say he, at this time in his life, he's probably like 4'10 to 5 feet tall. And he gets really lit because here's this Goliath person defying the God of his people. And so I'm going to pick it up in verse 17, or verse Samuel 17, starting in verse 41. It says this, Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. Goliath looked over David and saw that he was no more than a little boy, glowing with health and handsome, and Goliath despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered who will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David quickly ran up to the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground, and David slayed the champion. Now let me ask you this. Why is David so confident? Clearly, it's not his military prowess. It's not how big he was. It was his faith in who his God was and who he knew uh, and what God had done. Notice that David did not tie one thing to himself. It was all about what the Lord was going to do through him, right? And some people would be like, oh, well, you know, he killed a lion and a bear. God was getting him ready. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason is because David was a shepherd. Shepherds have a lot of downtime. And in that downtime, David read through and scoured and devoured the scriptures. He spent his life soaking in the presence of God, writing psalms and songs, daydreaming about how great his God was, getting to know the exploits of his God in history and the wonders that happened earlier and how God always provided for the impossible when his name was being challenged or his people were in, were in trouble. David knew the whole story of God. And when he faced Goliath, he was the only soldier that was not swayed by what he saw, but instead was convinced by what he knew. You see, David's faith was not forged in the moment. His faith was forged by the years of remembering, reflecting, and reminding himself of who God is and what he has done. He had daily fortified his own soul and spirit with the truths and the realities of who God was. He let the story of God transform him. His mind, his heart, his spirit, and his actions were all bound up in the realities of God because he knew the whole story of God. He knew that his God is a God who provides, protects, and defeats the enemies that come against his name. See, David knew the story of the Exodus where the Israelites were just this broken 
bunch of people going against the, great, the, the world leader of Egypt and God struck down the attempt of the Egyptians to keep Israel where they were at. He knew the story of Abraham where he sent his son. He went up on the sun or with his son on the hill and he was about to sacrifice him and God provided in the very moment of need. He knew the story of Joshua when he was taking the promised land and God literally made the sun stand still in the sky so that Joshua could defeat his enemies. And because of that, David was able to see things that others could not see because he had a holy confidence that no one else had. David had this. Stephen also knew the realities of who God was and the realities of what God had done. They were so cemented in his core that no one or nothing could come against it. See, Stephen, Stephen knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing when he said in the speech, when he said out loud in verse 56, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen knew that that was a death sentence if he opened his mouth and said those things in front of these Jewish leaders. But the relevance of even his own life did not compare to the truth and the reality of what he was witnessing in that moment. He knew that there was so much more than trying to hold on to his own life that awaited him. He was so convinced of the truth of who God was that he was not concerned even for his own life, but the glory of God and the exaltation of his name. And even in his final moment, Stephen recited scripture and died as his Lord Jesus did. In verse 59, he said, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit, which was in reference and allusion to what Jesus said on the cross and in Psalm 31.5. The word was so in him that in extreme pain, scripture flowed out of him. He was being bludgeoned to death by stones and Stephen's words on his lips were forgiveness, just like King Jesus' lips had forgiveness on his when he died. Because Stephen knew the whole story. He let that God story transform him. To the very last second, he was transformed and showing and revealing that transformation that affected those around him and continued to ripple and affect us today. Church, I wanna die like that. With the power of Christ coming out of my mouth, with the, with, when I get stuck, when I get pricked, I speak and bleed Jesus. We speak the truth of God and the realities of God. And I am far from being there right now, but we serve a God who will take regular, jacked up, messed up people and put his words in our mouth and transform us so deep in our core that we become world changers. Because here's the reality, Stephen wasn't really super great. Stephen was a nobody. He was simply a faithful follower of Jesus who was chosen to wait on widows. He was not chosen to be an apostle. He was not one of the main preachers of the gospel. This wasn't his occupation or his expectation. But Stephen told himself the entire story of God and let that story transform him. So God took this ordinary man and made him a passionate follower of Jesus that ended up changing the course of history. So this morning, I want you, I want you to take a page out of this book out of Stephen's story. And this is the third point. Own and play your part in the story. Own and play your part of the story. Okay, scripture's closed. There's, there's nothing gonna be added to this book. But that doesn't mean that God is not still penning his story through your life and what you are doing and that you are now actually an a, a embodiment of his people and his kingdom. And here's the deal. I repent to anybody who's like, well, I know Christians who they said this and they live that way. I do. I deeply repent for people who call in the name of Jesus and don't live it out. But listen, I can't control their narrative. I can't control their life. I can control my life. I can control what I do. 
I can control what I meditate on. You can control what you do. You can control what you meditate on. You can control whether or not you're asking daily to be filled with God's spirit and to get filled with his Holy Spirit to give you the power and the authority and the equipping that you have. So own your part. Play your part in the story of God. We get a snapshot of these two biblical greats who knew the whole story of God, David and Stephen. Let's break that down. What did they do? They dedicated their lives. Every day they gave God time and glory through prayer, worship, and the word. The deepest meditations of their heart were on God. And because of that, they knew who he was. They knew what he was capable of. Because when you've meditated on who God truly is, you have the power and the conviction to face any adversity, any trial, any persecution, any cultural pressure, anything that comes your way. Because when you meditate on Jesus, your passion to share comes alive. So let what ignites you be the flint that sparks other people in your life as well. Stephen was a man, but he was full of faith and he was full of the Holy Spirit. You get faith by reading the word and knowing who God is, knowing what he's done until you believe it in your bones and then it changes the way you see the circumstances around you. You get filled with the spirit and Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus gives you power through the Holy Spirit. Get filled, get faith, get in the word and watch how Jesus just lights up your life and allows you to become who he's called you to be. Because mm. when we read the Bible, you cannot just read this as some archaic history. That's not what this is. This is living and active. This is the proclamation of who God is and what he's done. This is the pages of the playbook that Jesus wants to do through you. Don't just see this as something that happened in the past or he's gonna do with somebody else or this is what he does with Pastor Mike or the churches in Asia and Africa. No, this is what he wants to do in Gainesville, Florida today through your life, through your ministry, through your words, through your prayers and your actions. And if you're like, bro, man, that's, uh, this is not me. I'm just like this jacked up. That's, then you're biblically qualified because he doesn't use the people who have it all together. He actually despises the people who are proud and are like, hey, I'm kind of a big deal. He wants the broken people who have no business being used by God, so congratulations, you just signed yourself up for the kingdom of God. Church, don't back down from the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Just imagine with me, what would happen if we all just took that, even just the people watching online, people in this room, if we took seriously what God is calling us to do, if we actually stopped giving ourselves all these distractions and all the social media and all of the movies and all the things that we just spend. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those, but when you're spending six hours a day doing that and you're spending like five minutes with Jesus, something's off. Okay, when we, when we really give ourselves, we devote ourselves to the whole story of God, good works are going to explode. There are missionaries in this room that are called to unreached people groups that are, God is just waiting to mobilize you. He's waiting for you to say yes. There are people who are supposed to start microchurches here in Gainesville and all over the state of Florida and he's waiting for you to say yes. There are people in this room, you need to be the voice at your business or your workplace or in your, in your classroom where he's waiting for you to just be able to say, hey, listen, Jesus is Lord. There are some of you who are, he's waiting for you to become foster parents. There are some of you, he's waiting for you to invite Muslims into your home and have dinner with them. And yes, we might suffer. Yes, people might not like you, but Jesus is worthy of our suffering. Jesus is worthy of our lives. Our call is to be obedient, to own our part of the story, to do what God is asking us to do, to be the women and the men that God is calling you to be.
Everyone's part in the story is gonna look different. I recognize that. You're not gonna look like me. I'm not gonna look like you. You're not gonna look like them. It's gonna be different, but we have to stop and listen, obey, and go. Do what he's calling you to do. Play your part, own your part, and watch Jesus come through. So years ago, there was a Romanian pastor, Joseph's son. He ran away from the communist, his communist country to study theology in England in 1972. And when he was ready to go back home, he discussed his plans to go back with his fellow students. They pointed out that he might be arrested on the border. One student asked Joseph, what are your chances, what chances do you have of successfully implementing your plans? Joseph smiled to himself and said, now this is typical Western thinking. He later wrote, chances of success? I never thought in those terms. My thinking was in terms of obedience. I knew that the king said go, and I had to say yes, sir, and go. So I turned the question around and asked God, what if I ask you about success? The Lord gave him Matthew 10, 16, as I send you as a sheep in the midst of wolves. The Lord said to him, tell me, what are the chances that a sheep has surrounded by wolves of surviving even five minutes, let alone converting the wolves? Joseph, that's how I send you, totally defenseless and without reasonable hope of success. If you're willing to go like that, go. If you're not willing to be in that position, don't go. Church, when we are knowledgeable of the whole story of God and we have been transformed by this story, there is no ask from Jesus Christ that is too much or too scary when it comes down to owning and playing our part in the story. Jesus has called you to great things. He did not call you to safe things. He did not call you to normal things. He called you to change the world. Because when we are transformed by God's story, we live differently. I want our church's hands to be dirty from being with the poor. I want our voices hoarse from standing with the oppressed and the neglected. I want our homes worn from the hospitality given to those who needed shelter. I want regular proclamations of the gospel happening to those who need to hear about Jesus. Church, don't stray from our purpose. We've been transformed so that we can be agents of transformation. This is a call to revolutionaries who want to change the world by actually going and doing the stuff that Jesus called us to do, by knowing and loving our God and making sacrifices to spend time with him, loving your neighbor, whether that's next door, at the border, in Afghanistan, those yet to be born or those sleeping on the streets, calling people who are willing to shirk the American dream for the kingdom revolution. I want our church members to be regularly asked, are you sure you want to do that? Because the way that we live our lives is so radically selfless and loving of other people that people don't see what we're doing. They're uncomfortable because it's not normal that people live that way. Church, this is what, we're not called to be normal. We're called to follow Jesus. Don't stop believing what the word says. Know the whole story. Be transformed by the story. Own and play your part. Don't pull back on the desire to do those crazy things that God put in your heart when you first got saved. Do the things he called you to do at first. Be an agent of transformation in the world around you. Because this is the story. It's a God story. It starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. And we're called to play our part. I love what Joseph Son says. Chances of success, I never thought in those terms. My thinking was in terms of obedience. I knew that the king said go, and I had to say yes, sir, and go. I'm not gonna have anybody get up here on the keys. I'm not gonna make it nice and comfortable. 
What I wanna do though is ask you a simple question. Are you following Jesus? I didn't ask if you go to church. I didn't ask if you got raised in a Christian home. I asked, are you following Jesus? Are you obeying his commands? Are you letting the love of the Father that we sing about touch you in the deepest parts of your soul in a way that radically transforms you and changes the way you live your life? He didn't call for fence straddlers. He didn't call for people to come to church. He didn't call for religion. He called for people who were recklessly abandoned for his cause, and he is going to meet your reckless abandonment with reckless love. And he's gonna do something inside of you that changes you and rattles your core, and he's gonna fulfill you in the way that you think you're going to get fulfilled with that job promotion, with your wife or your husband, with your kids or with your degree. They're not gonna cut it. Jesus is the one who's going to give you hope and faith and redemption and purpose and meaning and value. He's the only one. He's the only way. And he is going to take these words and transform you in a way that people who knew you before will not recognize you now. Because you're different. Because you're not of this world because you're no longer who you were. Jesus gave you new life. It says whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So this is what I wanna do this morning. Just like me, I don't know, what was that, 23 years ago, when I sat in that chair and I said, I'm not going up there. I want you, we're gonna do an altar call in your seat. And this is not just for people who don't know Jesus. This is for people who know Jesus. I don't want you to do what I say. I don't want to say, come down here and do this. I want Jesus to talk to you, and I want you to respond, listen and obey. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. That's what we're called to do. And so if you don't know Jesus, listen. He's Lord, and he will change your life. He died. He was buried. He was the only man who was resurrected. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave, and he is saying no more to that and yes to eternal life with God through him. And if you don't know him, that is your next step. I'm not gonna force you to do anything. I'm not gonna do anything, I'm, but I'm inviting you into eternal life this morning. If that's where you're at, that's your next step. If you're here and you know Jesus, if you're watching online and you know Jesus, we're gonna sit here in an awkward silence of about three minutes and I'm gonna let you listen to the Spirit, and I want you to write down, pull out your phone, shut off your Instagram that you were looking at when I was preaching, or take out a journal or something, and I want you to write down what it is that Jesus is calling you to do now. What is your next step? How are you going to be recklessly abandoned for the kingdom of God and what he has called you to do? What is that thing that maybe has been nagging at your heart for years and you're like, ah, I just need to do it? Then go do it. Just go do it. Maybe you're like, man, I need to get filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord to fill you with the Holy Spirit. If you want intimacy with God, get filled with the Spirit. He will give that to you. He will deliver that to you. Like I said, we're gonna take two or three minutes and I'm gonna ask nobody to leave. Don't get up and go get barbecue. Don't go out there and be first. I want you to truly listen to what God is calling you to do, write it down, and then this week, obey it. Because that's what we're called to do. We have forsaken, we have given up our rights when we start following Jesus. And we just said, Jesus, I'm gonna do whatever you call me to do. So let's take a few minutes.
and just listen. And I want you to tangibly write something down. And then go do it. All right, let's take two minutes and do that now. Father, we want to be people who hear your voice and respond. We want to be people who read your word and are convicted and are changed and encouraged and inspired and deeply loved in a way that we then pour that out in others. So Lord, every person watching online, every person in this room, whatever their next step is, I pray, God, that you're going to let that come to pass this week. There's going to be a boldness. There's going to be a, a courage. There's going to be obedience that really moves us forward in the ways and the power and the proclamation of who you are. So, Lord, I do. I pray blessing over every single person in this room. For those who know you, that they would know their next step. For those who don't know you, that they would have entered into the kingdom today. And, Lord, receive all that you have for us.